I uh, would love for you to turn to Luke 18 if you've got your Bibles. Um, I want to look at these verses pretty closely this morning. A question we started with a minute ago, you know, what, <clears throat> what are you going to say if, if God were to ask you? Why do you let me in? Why should you let me in? I think you guys know the answer to that question. Uh, this is an 8 o'clock crowd. You know, you guys know the answer to that question. The answer would be something like, Jesus, right? You should let me in because of Jesus. And that's, that's a very good answer, I think. But I'm more interested, I think, I think we ought to be more interested in, in, in what does our life say, what does our attitude say about our answer to the question. I want you to think where you belong in the story that Jesus told. Two men went up to the temple to pray a Pharisee, and a tax collector. Our reading of a story like this, when it has the word Pharisee, has been informed by 2,000 years of Christian history. We know, everybody in this room who's old enough to understand what I'm talking about right now understands Pharisees are the bad guys, right? We understand that. I mean, the word Pharisee itself is a pejorative term these days. Call somebody a Pharisee, you're calling them a hypocrite, a somebody characterized by legalism, somebody who doesn't live what he or she says, you know, we know what a Pharisee is. It's important when we study a text like this, any biblical text, to put ourselves in the sandals of the people listening to what Jesus is talking about here. And you guys know that maybe that Pharisees, they were the heroes when Jesus said this. Like, like they didn't think Pharisee, oh, okay, they're the bad guys. No, 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 they thought... The Pharisee, that's the good guy, and the tax collector, that's the bad guy. So, so that's, that's the way they're hearing this. I just don't want you and me to be too quick to rush to say, well, I'm not the Pharisee, I know that. I don't know that we are, or that we aren't, but we ought to at least consider that what Jesus teaches us here has something to say to us today. Pharisee and a tax collector. Our society, <clears throat> many societies, but let's talk about ours, the world in which you and I have been raised and in which we formed the way we view life, you know, is a, based on merit. It's based on merit. And, and so from an early age, we know that we've got to be careful about what we do. And even now, those of you who are parents, grandparents, you know, you, you bring up your children and you teach them you know, you need to be careful about your schoolwork because there's coming a day when you're going to want to apply to college and that college is going to look at your GPA and they're going to look at your ACT score or your SAT score. They're going to look at your extracurriculars. They're going to look to see if you were involved in service organizations. They're going to they're sort through your application and they're going to base a scholarship or maybe an acceptance letter on what they see on your application. And so you need to be very careful. You need to study hard. You need to get good grades. You need, to, you need to take that prep class for the ACT. You need to get involved in some extracurricular activities. You know, do some after-school things. Maybe play sports. Maybe be in the band. Do something because you want to get to, you're going to, when you're going to be 17, 18 years old, you're going to fill out an application. They're going to be watching that. As adults, we do it. I'm, I'm guessing most people in this room have done a resume before, a CV perhaps, and on that 
resume, on that CV, you put a number of things. And the basic purpose of that resume is to make you stand out because you want that employer, whoever is going to glance at it first. You know, you've read the stuff, maybe you hire a professional writer, a professional proofreader to go through your resume and make sure that it doesn't do any of the, doesn't have any glaring mistakes, that it presents yourself in the best possible light, you know, that it's got everything ordered like this and, and all the various rules, one page, whatever, the reference list, I mean, all this stuff, the it needs to be right because you know that it might only get a cursory glance. And so what do you got to do on that resume? You got to make yourself stand apart from the crowd. I'm not like those people. I'm, I'm, I'm more qualified than that next resume you're going to look at. You know, our world works like this. You know this. It, it works. It's a meritocracy. You do well and you'll be rewarded. You make good grades you have good extracurriculars, you write a good entrance essay, you, you, you curate your social media presence, you make sure that your resume looks like this, and, and your credentials are like this, and, and what pops, you know, something on it pops, so that they look at you and they know he or she has some qualifications that we're looking for. Now, I'm not saying any of that's wrong, necessarily, only that... That's the way our world works. That's the way our society works. And if we're not careful, we think God works according to a similar kind of meritocracy. And so we carefully curate our resume. This, Lord, is what I've done. I've made not perfect grades, but I've made pretty good grades. Better grades than that guy. I mean, quite honestly, you know this, right, God? My grades are so much better than hers. Isn't that what we see here in the story? This first one went up to the temple to pray. This, uh, this, this Pharisee. Of course, verse 9, uh, Luke tells us that he told this parable because he was, he was wanting to talk to people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and they treated others with contempt. Strong language there. They... They uh, treated others with contempt. Some translations put that they despised others. This is a, uh, I don't know, it's, it's, a, it's a bad, bad attitude here. Trusted themselves, compared themselves to others. Two men went up to the temple to pray. Verse 10, a Pharisee and a tax collector. Verse 11, Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus. He prayed like this. God, I thank you that I am not like other people, other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even... Like this tax collector, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. That's pretty short. Probably representative of prayers that Jesus had heard or that he knew were being prayed. This is spiritual resume. You know, this is, Lord, this is, this is, this is me. I'm, I'm doing pretty well. You know, we all got to agree on this. I look pretty good, especially when you compare me to these other folks. You know, the tr funny thing is, the prayer starts out pretty well. You just take the first four words and you think, oh, this is going to be a good prayer. God, I thank you. You and I have started prayers like that many times. Father, I thank you. Father, we thank you. God, we thank you. But what follows after those four words is crucial. Because what followed after those four words is five uses of the personal pronoun. Thank you. And here's my resume. 
Here's my CV. I'm not like other men, number one. This is what they look like. They extort. They are unfair. They commit adultery. Even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, probably Monday and Thursday. I give 10% of my income. I'm not like other people. I've, I've done well. I've been working on this for quite a while now. And so you ought to accept me because of that. <laughs> now, everybody in this room knows that is a ridiculous prayer to pray, isn't it? This is not a surprise to you. You guys know this. You don't pray a prayer like this. At least we don't do that consciously. We don't... We know better than to say a prayer like that, right? But the thing is about it, we so easily fall into this kind of trap. Maybe not in our prayers, but maybe just in the way that we think about religion. We think about obedience even. And maybe we worry so much about a false teaching that it's grace alone and that your obedience doesn't matter. And so we worry so much about that that if we're not careful, we can throw that out completely and maybe even throw a little bit of the grace out and we can find ourselves creeping, at least in our thinking, to the other Pharisaic kind of extreme where we think God accepts me based on my resume, my spiritual resume. That's why He's going to say, come in on that day. You who are blessed of my Father, as Jesus says in Matthew 25, you know. You know, it's interesting, in, in the same chapter here, Luke 18, if you were to read on in verses 15 through 17, this whole, this whole chapter is about what do you trust in? Do you trust in yourself or do you trust in God? Because the very next story, verses 15 through 17, we're not going to study these, but some people were bringing infants to him that he might touch them. And the disciples get upset about that. And Jesus said, let the children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. And, and he says, whoever doesn't receive the kingdom of God like a child cannot enter it. You see, what he's saying there is a child. A child has many, many faults. Those of you who've been a parent or a parent know that your children are imperfect and they have, they have these things that you've got to discipline and, and teach and, and all this stuff. But a child, especially in the context where Jesus is talking about this, a child knows that she, maybe the child doesn't know it at certain ages, but a child is completely dependent on her mother, on her father, to take care of their needs. And he goes on, and he tells, there's another story that happens. A ruler came to him and said, what, what good thing can I do? What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, you know, keep the commandments. You know the commandments. Don't commit adultery. Don't murder and so on. He says, I've done this. I've got a good resume. I've kept all those commandments my whole life. I've never killed anyone. I've never committed adultery. I've honored my parents. And, and I've, I've, got, I've done it. Here's, look, check, you know, check, check my resume. It looks good. Not violated any of the big commandments. And Jesus said, sell what you got and give it to the poor. You see, because he knew that for him, what he was trusting in was his faithfulness to certain commands. But he was missing the heart thing. He trusted in his riches because he wouldn't give them up. He trusted in his money. 
So the whole chapter here in this phase of Jesus' ministry is about what do you trust in? Do you trust in your resume? Do you trust in your, I'm not a child, I'm independent, I'm self-reliant. I don't need other people. I don't need anything. I can do things on my own. Do you trust in your resume? Do you trust in your self-reliance? Do you trust in your money? Do you trust in your social status? Well, I've got this house, and I've got this car, and this is my resume, and these are my academic credentials, and this is my, my work history, and, and, or, or, or this is, I haven't done any of the bad things that so many people do. I've never done those sins. See, the Pharisee, when he stood before God, he trusted not in God, his answer to the question, why should I be justified? Why, why, God, why, should, why, should, why should I declare you upright before me? And he said, this is why. This is why. Look at this. This is good. This is good. Let me come in. Let me be just. That's what justify means. It means to declare right, to be on solid ground in front of God. That's what justify means, to make right or to make just. But the tax collector, verse 13, his prayer is different. Starts out with the same word, God. He wouldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven but he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. It's interesting, just the language Luke uses to introduce him to as the tax collector, that would, have, that would have turned a whole audience away. A tax collector? You know how often Jesus did this? The heroes of his stories were the outcasts. It wasn't the priest, it wasn't the Levi who stopped and helped the guy on the side of the road, it was the Samaritan. It's not the Pharisee, the religious hero of the day, who offered an acceptable prayer, but it was the tax collector. Maybe you know about these tax collectors, even in our own day, um, IRS is often used in a negative sense, Right? Imagine that multiplied by many factors in, 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 in the first century. They were considered the scum of the earth. They were traitors. They were considered to be dishonest. All this stuff. Tax collectors were awful people. They extorted money from the people. They were sometimes violent. Sometimes they had these thugs working for them. I mean, they, they, were, they had a bad reputation, and sometimes it was quite deserved. But this tax collector came, and he said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Very short prayer. He wouldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven. He, the, the, the Pharisee standing by himself, probably he's standing there and he's got his arms stretched out and he's looking up to heaven. You're so, you're so lucky to have me on your side. But the tax collector wouldn't even lift up his eyes. Standing far off, wouldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he hit himself on his chest and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. This is emphatic. He said, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't have anything to bring. I don't, my resume looks bad. I've, it's, uh, I don't, I don't, I don't have any, I don't have any, thing to bring to, to this exchange here, if that's what it is. 
God be merciful to me, a sinner. And you think about it, I mean, do you think about how this, how Jesus lived his life, how, how he taught and in, in Matthew 5, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus has got this audience, he's on this mountain, and the crowd is ready to hear him teach about what the kingdom's going to be like. And Jesus, in the Messiah, is going to come riding on the white stallion. He's going, to, he's going to lead the armies and overthrow the Roman occupiers. I mean, this strength and power and might and victory and winning. And, and Jesus starts out this kingdom sermon. Here's what, the kingdom's, here's what my kingdom's going to look like. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. First words. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Recently wrote an article about this. I don't know if on the front of the bulletin, if you look at those, about being penniless. And it's this idea in Matthew 5.3, this blessed are the poor in spirit thing, that word, that Greek word that is used there means means nothing, like penniless, homeless. They had another word that means poor. That's not the word he used. They had this word which meant absolutely nothing. You got nothing. You don't don't have anything. It's not that you're scraping by. You're not getting by at all because you don't have anything at all. Blessed are the poor. What kind of poverty are are you talking about, Jesus? Blessed are the poor, the poverty stricken in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They come to the temple to pray and they say, I don't have anything to give. Now, if this makes us uncomfortable, and maybe it should make us uncomfortable, and it might do, do that in a couple of ways. One is, it might make us uncomfortable because we think we're, we're demeaning obedience when we say stuff like this. That if, if, you, if you preach this too clearly, if you preach this too forcefully, then people listening in our church are going to think God doesn't care about obedience. He doesn't care about it. It's all about just, oh, all you got to do is just, you know, just kind of flippantly say, I, I, I don't, I've made a mess of things. I'm messed up. You know, I don't have any hope and, and all that. And that's, that's all you got to do. You know what? It's interesting how Jesus in his ministry, he teaches what he teaches in this little story, but he also, he also preached obedience so forcefully and so passionately and so clearly with Jesus it wasn't either you obey or you have the attitude of the tax collector it wasn't it wasn't like that for Jesus I think what he's getting at here is what is your motive why do you do what you do what is your heart like why why do you come to church why do you serve in the community why do you get baptized? Why do you sing? Why do, why do you do what you do religiously? Is it because you want to make sure that your resume is good because you know God's going to look carefully over your resume on that day? Or is it because you know that there is absolutely nothing you can do and you are so overwhelmed with gratitude for God's free gift of salvation that you want to spend your life in obedient, in an obedient response to the overwhelming grace and mercy of God. It's not about does obedience matter or not. Of course it matters. But what matters even more is why do we do what we do? What do we trust in? That's the message of this chapter. What do we trust in? The resume? Do we trust in like the the disciples rebuking the 
bomb us bringing their kids to Jesus? Do we, do we trust in self-reliance? We're not going to be like the, these, these kids. We're not going to be like this tax collector. Man, he's made a mess of things. We're not going to be like these people who don't have money, the rich young ruler down below. What do you trust in for your justification? This changes the way we view things. In churches of Christ, we have historically been very adamant about correct, sound doctrine. And I would never say doctrine doesn't matter. Having said that, we can allow a commitment to being right to overshadow our acknowledging that our acceptance with God is based on grace. Should we be concerned about correct doctrine? Absolutely. We should try to worship faithfully and correctly. We should try to live obediently. But our justification cannot be based on getting it all right because we cannot and we will not get it all right. Our resume is going to have blemishes on it. All right? So we stand before God and we stand on unmerited favor. That's what the Pharisee needed to learn and that's what the tax collector intuitively understood. When we stand before God in judgment, we want to hear these words from Him. You're not guilty. You're not guilty. We know we're guilty. I think all of us are going to know. Pharisee knew down deep inside him. He knew he was guilty. He tried to kind of gloss over it. He tried to whitewash it. He tried to make their, cover up the blemishes, the holes in his experience and the holes in his resume. You know, he tried to, tried to cover all that up. Deep down, he knew he was guilty. And I think deep down, we all know that. We all know that. Even when we have those moments where we're looking at somebody else thinking, well, I'm better than she is. I'm better than he is. Even, even in those times, we know. You may be here as somebody who's not a Christian, you know, and, and, and I think you know. You know this. This is not just a Christian thing. This is a human thing. We know somewhere inside of us that we've made a mess of things and something's broken and something's messed up. We may not know what it is all the time, but we know, man, something's... I don't, know, I don't know what to call it. I just know something's not right. What, and the thing that's not right is we've made a mess of our relationship with God. We're guilty. And our quest, and I'm convinced, there's, I'm convinced every human being is pursuing this, even people who aren't religious, is we want not to be guilty. We want to be accepted. We want to be right. We want for the ultimate being of the universe, in whom some people don't even believe, and yet they're seeking his approval. I, I, I really believe that people who aren't, aren't believers in God, they're not theists, they're not Christians, they still want God's approval. They just don't know what to call him. They're, they're, they're accumulating riches, they're accumulating their academic pedigree, they're, they're trying to get this good job, they're, they're trying to whatever. And, and, and what they're doing is, they don't know it, but what they're doing is they're getting that resume because they want to be accepted by one whom they might not, might not even confess. And so we, this morning, we come to God and we want to be declared not guilty. And it will be based on 
not how good we've been, not getting everything right, but on our humility. As we fall before God's throne and we say to Him, God, be merciful to me. I am a sinner. I'm a sinner. That's the spirit that God is looking for. And if you have that attitude, does obedience matter? Yeah, you'll spend your life trying to obey. Does it matter how we worship? Yes, it matters. Does it, does it matter if you, if you do bad things or not do bad things? Of course it matters. But the most important thing is what is at the core of your heart? In whom or in what do you trust for that not guilty verdict? And the tax collector got it right. He trusted in God's grace and mercy to declare him right when he knew he had been wrong. If you're not a Christian this morning, Jesus, about whom we've been talking this morning, he invites you to come to him. Most important thing is you come to him with that kind of attitude that says, Lord, I've made a mess of things and I need help. I need help. That's what it means to become a Christian. You come with that spirit and God God works with those sorts of hearts, you know. He can't work with a proud heart. He can't work with a heart that says, you know, I just need a little tweaking. I just need a little help. Just push me over the edge. That's not it. It is, God be merciful to me, a sinner. You come to Him with that attitude. You turn your back on your past. You accept the salvation that Christ offers. You're baptized as a public demonstration of what is happening at that moment, that water signifying the washing of sin away by the blood of Christ. That's what it means to become a Christian. We invite you today to come to Jesus, maybe to come back to Jesus and ask for His forgiveness once again. Let's stand. Let's sing this song.